David, please flip over to Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12. Some of your texts will say the laws of motherhood. Some of you will know this text to be the ritualistic cleansing required for those after childbirth. Not everyone is in the same Sunday school class, but if you were in Shane's Sunday school class this morning, a great deal of preparation for this text this morning. It's just funny, like part of part of what was shared this morning in Shane's class, what a smaller portion was God's just funny sometimes in how he providentially and sovereignly brings things together at a right time and a right place. And so uh, there was a, a, a grand discussion given this morning about motherhood and now we're in the ritualistic cleansing purity text in Leviticus 12 about motherhood. It's just kind of funny how that worked out. Um, this is the text, if you remember, and somebody mentioned it to me because they said they read it before they came to service this morning and they didn't see the connection. This is the text that a couple of weeks ago I said, if it had fallen on Easter, it would be a great Easter text and I would have preached it on Easter Sunday morning. And for those of you who are trying to get the gold star in class who read ahead, you probably like that person are going, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? So let's read the text together and we see if we can get there from here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days as in the days of her of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks as in her menstruation. And then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering. And a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be cleansed from her flow of blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. The one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her and she will be clean. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you even for those texts that seem odd like this one. Father, thank you that in them you have hidden in the shadows the Lord of glory. Father, we thank you in your providence and in your sovereignty that you have prepared in advance a grander, greater, larger story than just ritual purification. And Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, the title of the sermon is the Jesus, the Lamb Mary Could Not Afford. So I want to walk through the actual text itself, just kind of lay out the, the bare bones of it. And then we'll kind of walk through two very key important things from Leviticus 12 as they are dealt with. In the New Testament. So first, 
This text is very technically a text about the laws of ritual impurity after childbirth. Now, it talks about what's to be done if a woman gives birth to a male child, what's to be done if they give birth to a female child, and the sacrifices that they're supposed to bring. I, I want to just kind of lay something out there for everyone as a point of clarity as to why this is. Because in the world that we live in now, a text like this one gets pretty assaulted by aggressive third and now fourth wave feminism. That's just the patriarchal system holding women back and something natural and beautiful like childbirth somehow making them impure and it's because they hated women and blah, 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 blah. That's not the case at all. Now, it might have become that over time, but God gave this law and God doesn't hate women. There were a lot of male voices that said, amen. Some of the women must not be convinced in the room this morning. God, God doesn't hate you because you're a woman. Thank you. I just want to throw that out there. And, and God's not going to give a law in regard to women that somehow belittles them and shows that he has disregard for them. That's not what this law is here for. And so any modern interpretation that tries to slant this law in that direction is actually saying way less about the Hebrew people and the law system they had and a whole lot more about what you think about God. Because that's not how God operates. God created them male and female. They both bear his image. And this law is not a law of hatred or belittlement or restriction in any way toward women as our modern culture would try to dare say. Not to be too inappropriately graphic with a mixed audience this morning, but this is a passage of law about ritual purity after childbirth. Let me tell you what's going on with this law in a very bare bones technical sense. The Hebrew people, and we've seen this through the sacrifices up to this point. The Hebrew people profoundly understood that life is associated with the concept of blood. That's why you pour out the blood of the sacrifices. That's why you don't consume the blood of, certain, of the animals. You make sure that that doesn't happen. Even in the Jerusalem Council in the New Testament, when the Gentiles began to be converted, one of the things they held on to was just make sure that they don't eat animal blood. Why? Because they understood that blood and life go together. And when you take the blood away from something, you're taking the life away from something. Well, though not always the case, especially in our very modern context that we live in, childbirth tends to involve blood and the loss of blood, particularly of the one who's giving birth to the child. And there was a concern. Listen, far be it from this being a text of hatred. There was a concern for both the physical and spiritual well-being of the woman who had lost some life, so to speak, from her loss of blood. That's what this is concerning about. It even says it in the text. She is ritualistically impure. Why? What reason does it give? For her loss of blood. That's what they were worried about. 
They tied the notion, and by the way, rightly so, pretty incredible in the pre-scientific, quote-unquote, uneducated society, how much they understood about life and blood being tied together. Kind of cool when God tells you, you know. And so that's what this bare bones is about. It's about the connection of blood and life. And how God ties that to purity and to ritualistic ceremonial purity and being pure before him and all manner of other things like that. So when there was a male child to be born, there was a standard period of seven day ritual and cleanness. And then that was followed by an additional 33 days. So 40 total days for a purification process. And the male child was to be circumcised on the eighth day at the end of the mother's ritual seven-day period of of impurity prior to being able to to kind of go back to some sense of normalcy. Now, I want to make a, a note here. And this is a very important note to make. Circumcision in the Hebrew life was initiated aggressively at the covenant with Abraham. We know this. This is the sign of the covenant that your male children will be circumcised. We also know, though, that the formal giving of the law happened after Abraham. We know that Moses engaged in circumcision, particularly with his children. We know that because of the covenant that was given to Abraham for circumcision, that all of the Hebrew people prior to the law participated in this rite of circumcision because it was a covenantal reality given to Abraham. This is what you do as a sign of this covenant that's been made. It's important to note, though, that the first place in the official law of God that they are commanded in conjunction with that covenant that was given in Genesis To circumcise their children is here in Leviticus chapter 12 in the laws of ritualistic cleansing after childbirth. So up until this point, the official Mosaic law has said nothing about formal circumcision. It's all been placed on the covenant covenant made with Abraham. Now the covenant has been codified in the Mosaic law here in Leviticus chapter 12. Say, Philip, why does that matter? It's going to be really important how the New Testament uses this in just a minute. Really important. So I just want you to file that away because it's going to make a big difference in a few minutes. And so there's this call. Now, if she were to have a female child, there's 14 days of ritual uncleanness, followed by 66 days of additional purification, doubling it up, making it 80 days. Now, I want to go ahead and say the reasons that scholars give as to the time differential between a male child and a female child being born and the extension of the purification period vary greatly. Like, it's wild the number and differences of opinions about why this is. And what I have found in my long tenure of studying theology deeply is that the less the Bible says about something the more people tend to say about that thing. That's just kind of how it works. Like when the Bible's real quiet about something, but people feel like they need to have an answer for it, that's when the books get cranked out. 
and the articles and the journals and the whatever. Lots of trees die unnecessary deaths for people to pin down their opinion about something they can't know for sure. It's just how it is. And so I could take a lot of time today and I could break down for you all of the different views that are out there as to why this purification period lasts longer for the birth of a male child or a female child. But I'm not going to do that. I'll give you a couple of examples just to kind of show you how wildly different these viewpoints are. But as I have made it my habit from this pulpit, because I want to try to be as truthful and as honest and as transparent from this pulpit as I can be. Why is there a difference? I don't know. And neither do the dozens and dozens and dozens of scholars who've written about this with a lot of gusto. They don't know either. Because the Bible doesn't tell us why. Now, some people have better sounding theories than other. other but at the end of it, it's still just a theory. They just don't know. It's a hypothesis. They're not sure. So to give you an example. In one camp, there's the Adam was made before Eve creation order, sacred temple motif. And Adam was placed in the temple first. And then there was bloodletting from Adam for uh, Eve, for Eve to be born out of him. And then from there forward, there's bloodletting from women for all other people to be born from them. And since it's part of a natural process for the absence of bloodletting from women to give birth to children, if she gives birth to someone who might bloodlet later to give birth to someone else, there is an extension of the lifeblood combo. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's crazy. Like the stuff that people try to cipher through all this stuff sounds kind of cool. I don't see that in Leviticus chapter 12. And so there's just all kinds of stuff like that. Like that's just one big example, but it's all over the map. And then of course there's the ones that are just profanely dumb. Like I legitimately read somebody who had the audacity to say, well, it's because women are less than men. Yeah, I don't see it. And so, you know, I, I can't can't go with that one. But it's all kind of stuff. We don't know. Why is the purification period longer and shorter? I don't know. But here's the great thing that you can be encouraged by. The main point of Leviticus chapter 12, at least the key issues that are carried over into the New Testament and how the New Testament addresses some of these things is not about that. Praise God. It's not about that. Now, the sacrifices, whether they had a male child or a female child, are the same. And this is what's key. There's two key things in Leviticus 12. One is the codification of circumcision. Two is the sacrifices that are called for for the ritual purification. There is to be a burnt offering and then there's to be a sin offering. So there's supposed to be a lamb for the burnt offering and a bird for the sin offering. That's that's the normal sacrifice. Bring a one-year-old lamb for the burnt offering and bring a bird for the sin offering. That's the normal sacrifice. However, if she finds herself without means, in other words, if she finds herself to be poor, she can't afford a lamb, she doesn't have one, She can't get one. God in his remarkable kindness offers 
a substitute sacrifice. You can just bring two birds. You don't have to bring the lamb. Now, that seems like a small thing. That seems like a little thing. But I want you to file that away with the thing about circumcision because we're about to try to bring all of them together. So here in Leviticus 12, when a male child is born, verse 3, the codification of the covenantal reality of circumcision is given. The eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. I want you, if you would please, to flip over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. If you're not sure where that is, hit Galatians, General Electric Power Company. Colossians is the last one in that little set. Got to learn the tricks to beat the kids at the Bible drill game. All right. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. In whom, speaking about Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy Empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, but rather according to Christ. For in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. That's salvation by grace through faith. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised. With a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him up from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You say, okay, so what does this have to do with the, the mandate for circumcision, the codifying of the covenant picture of entrance into the family of faith. Well, it's key because in the New Testament. And you can you can run through this if you'd like in the New Testament, it becomes very obvious very quickly that the covenant picture of circumcision is unnecessary 
and truly unrelated to the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Paul makes that incredibly clear in the book of Galatians, like so clear. I don't actually want to say what he says there. It's actually pretty violent the way that he talks about it in the book of Galatians about people encouraging other people that they need to be circumcised to actually be part of the church and to be in Christ and all manner of things. And he stands adamantly, let me understate it, stands adamantly against that notion in the book of Galatians. And he talks about people being deceived and who's tricked you and all other kinds of things. When the Jerusalem council meets, no mention of the need for continuing in circumcision. None at all. And there's never, I apologize to my recovering Presbyterian friends, there's never a meaningful association of the sign of the covenant of circumcision with the sign of covenant of baptism, even though it sounds like I just read that in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is not talking about actual real Hebrew covenantal circumcision. It's using a metaphor of the idea of circumcision to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, the circumcision of Christ, as is always the case with all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. They find their larger, broader, greater fulfillment in the work of Jesus. And so circumcision is no longer relevant as a covenant reality because Christ has established a new and better covenant. And the old picture of circumcision is now relegated in metaphorical terms to the bloodletting of Christ, namely his crucifixion on the cross. That's what Colossians is talking about. What does it say? It says, in him you're also circumcised with a circumcision made Without hands, it's not talking about the actual circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant or the codification of Leviticus 12. In the removal of the body of the flesh, how? By the circumcision of Christ. And you say, but then it ties it to baptism. Well, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised to walk in the faith of workings of Christ, raised from the dead. Yes, there is an association in the language here, but it's not a one for one reality. Baptism, hear me friends, hear me this morning. Baptism, we saw it this morning, is not the new circumcision. I know that bothers some people because you hear that from a lot of people in theological circles. But baptism is not the new circumcision. So, but it's a sign of the covenant. Absolutely, it's a sign of the covenant. But it's not the new circumcision. You know what else is a sign of the covenant? The Lord's table that we're going to share here in a minute. They didn't have a food-related sign of the covenant. They had some food-related things you're supposed to do, celebrate the Passover, some other kinds of things. But they weren't covenantal like circumcision was. So what do we do with this? This mandate that's given, this codification of the covenant reality that is given to us in Leviticus 12, is to point us to the greater circumcision of the flesh, namely the circumcision of the flesh of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And it's a metaphorical picture here of the removal of the flesh of our sin. Notice what it says in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what did Christ do because of the circumcision of his flesh on the cross? He made you alive together with him having forgiven us of all of our transgressions. Friends, this is far superior in every way to the meaning of circumcision in the Old Testament because the circumcision did not remove your sins. 
It didn't do that. What helped to deal with your sin in the old covenant? It was the sacrifices. It was the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and all the other kinds of things. That's what addressed your sin in the old covenant. It was the celebration of those things. The ritual cleansing, the ritual washings and all that sort of thing. It wasn't the reality of circumcision. And so the New Testament, Paul in particular, uses this picture of circumcision. This covenant reality of coming into a family, which is what it meant in the Old Testament. Hey, you're part of a people now. Officially, recognizably part of a people. And he ties it to, well, the only way that that can happen to you in the New Covenant reality is for you to come into the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. He's been circumcised in his flesh for you. And it's a circumcision not made with hands. It's from the Father above. And so of the things going on in Leviticus 12, the two most important things, one is the codification of the reality of circumcision that happened to a male on the eighth day that is now reinterpreted in light of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's how the New Testament understands this reality. And there was a massive debate in the New Testament. A great controversy, if you will, that almost split the church right in half over should we physically receive the sign of circumcision anymore? And the answer was resoundingly no. Why? Because we have Christ. We don't need that sign anymore. That Hey, that's not the covenant I'm entering in anymore. I'm entering into a new covenant. And it's in the flesh of Christ. And his flesh has been circumcised. By his work on the cross. And if you want to come into the new covenant by way of circumcision. Then the new covenant circumcision is the death and resurrection of Jesus. The circumcision not made with hands. And it's incredibly important for us to note that the first time in the actual law, the the law of Moses that's been written out in code form, where circumcision is mentioned as a requirement is also in conjunction with the purification sacrifices given for childbirth. And you say, why does that matter? Because there's a beautiful story in Luke's gospel. And I want us to move on to the next thing. And it's a weird question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it anyway. Why did God the Father have Jesus the Son born to a poor family? Because all of us have had this conversation at some point. We, We question the wisdom of God in the incarnation. Why did God have Jesus, the Savior of the world, Born to a poor, podunk, no-name family on the backside of nowhere. When if he'd have had this done differently, the word would have gotten out a lot quicker than what it did. Why would he do that? And there's this beautiful story in Luke's gospel. Where Mary has Jesus. She spends her seven days in ritual purification. On the eighth day, she brings him for his circumcision. And she offers, it says in Luke's gospel, two birds. Why would she do that? Because Leviticus 12 says, if you don't have means, 
God's kind enough to let you do a different kind of sacrifice. And friends, it is not without meaning that Mary did not have the means to sacrifice a lamb when she came. There's a lot of meaning in this. Hear me this morning. We're going to run through it. I want to spend the rest of our time here together. Friends, Mary could not afford the sacrifice of an actual lamb. She couldn't do that. And this was part of God's providence. Why? Because Jesus is the lamb. Mary gave birth to the lamb of God. Mary, hear me this morning. Hear me this morning. And any of my Catholic friends that are hearing this, we can talk about it. As like a little aside, little asterisk, I actually wrote my dissertation on Marian theology. So I'm about to like talk to you about something I really know what I'm talking about. Okay, It's going to sound way out there, but I really do know what I'm talking about. Mary could not offer the Lamb of God on behalf of sin. She could not offer a lamb as a sin offering and a burnt offering. She couldn't do that. Why? Because she was a sinner in need of a Savior too. She had to bring the birds. Why? Because God Himself, the Lamb, was ordained in the eternal work of the Trinity to offer Himself for the sins of His people. Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus is the burnt offering Lamb and the Passover Lamb. We'll talk more about the Passover reality later in Leviticus. But I want you to consider the New Testament descriptions and appointments of Jesus as the Lamb. In John's writing, John chapter 1, verses 29 and 36, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who He is. And friends, there's no Lamb in the Old Testament that does that. There's no designated lamb as a burnt offering or a sin offering or any other kind of offering or Passover celebration lamb that is declaring this is the once for all lamb sacrifice that you won't have to make any more lamb sacrifices. But John, when he sees Jesus, says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what was Jesus doing In that ministry, when John's pointing at him, he's fulfilling the fullness of the old covenant so that he could be that spotless, without blemish lamb for the slaughter, as it says in Isaiah chapter 53. In Acts chapter 8, verse 32, cross-referencing that passage from Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says that as a sheep he was carried to the slaughter, as a lamb brought before his shearers. That beautiful messianic passage in Isaiah 53 is a description of Christ yielding his life as a lamb for sacrifice. First Peter chapter 1, verse 19, when Peter is talking about how we've been saved and he's comparing the old covenant reality and the perishable things of the old covenant with the new covenant reality, he says we haven't been saved by the perishable things, but instead we've been redeemed through the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
And he makes this connection to the bloodletting of Christ as that which delivers us. And then, friends, I want to point out, and I'm not going to read all of them, but I have them listed for you. The reason why we have the motif of Jesus as the lamb is because of the book of Revelation. John mentions it twice in his gospel. It's mentioned once in Acts, mentioned again in 1 Peter. It's mentioned 31 times in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the lamb. It, in fact, is the most common way that Jesus is talked about in the book of Revelation. I have listed for you all the verses if you want to go home and read them later this afternoon. But friends, the picture of Jesus as the lamb in the book of Revelation makes that idea of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb not just a reality of the first coming of Christ, but also an eschatological reality of the second coming of Christ as the one who's victorious. Because when John speaks of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, he speaks of him as one who has already had the victory. He's the Lamb slain, but when is he slain? From the foundation of the world. The eternal plan of God. He's the lamb who's doing what? He's sitting on the throne, ruling from heaven. He's the lamb who's worthy to release judgment in the world when those seals... Who's worthy to open up the seals and break the scroll? It's the lamb who was slain, who's seated on the throne. He's worthy to open up the scroll. He's worthy to break the seals. This is the one who's worthy. The lamb is the one who's worthy. He's worthy to rule. He's worthy to reign. He's worthy to bring judgment in the world. It is the lamb who has access to the book of life. It's called his book. It's the lamb's book of life. And the lamb, it says regularly, is worthy to be worshipped in the book of Revelation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And behold, the angels sang this song and the elders sang this song and the congregation and who they, they're singing it to the lamb. The picture of the slain yet risen lamb on a throne. In the book of Revelation, the lamb is prophet, the lamb is priest, the lamb is king, the lamb is judge, the lamb is God. Friends, Mary can't offer that. They feel that's incidental. It's not incidental. There's nothing incidental in God's redemptive plan. God gave a law to Israel when they were wandering around in the desert waiting to go into the promised land. And it's very short. This section's very short. Hey, listen, uh, ladies, when you give birth to a male child on the eighth day, you need to circumcise him. Let's codify that covenantal reality. And then to reach back to the place of, of ritual purification, this is the offering that you need to make. You need to either offer a lamb and a bird, or if you don't have the means, offer two birds. So I'm going to send my lamb into the world to be the salvation of my people. And I'm going to give him to this poor, wretched teenage girl on the backside of nowhere who has nothing. And when she, being an obedient Hebrew woman, comes to... To, to have him circumcised and to give her offering of ritual purity, she will not have the means to sacrifice a lamb for sin. Why? 
Because she gave birth to a lamb who will sacrifice himself for sin. Friends, Mary needed a lamb just as much as we do. And Mary couldn't sacrifice him for us. She could be a vessel for him to be born to us. But she can't nail him to a cross. Why? Because he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It is God's everlasting, eternal plan that Christ would be both priest and sacrifice. That he would be the lamb that purifies. That he would be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Mary couldn't have offered the lamb. The lamb has to offer himself. And God in his sovereign providence ordained that Jesus would be born to a dirt poor girl in the backside of nowhere so that she wouldn't even dare thinking about bringing a lamb to be sacrificed because there's no way she could afford it. Because Christ himself is the fulfillment of every type and shadow of the Lamb. It's beautiful. God in His providence, to maintain the fulfillment of the types and shadows, and so that we would declare for all eternity with those around the throne in the great revelation picture, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That's a beautiful thing. He said, Philip, how do they come together? The circumcision and the lamb. Friends, the New Testament makes two things about these two issues very clear. One, the circumcision of Christ's flesh is a metaphor for his crucifixion. That's clearly what Paul is saying in Colossians. There's no other way to understand that text properly. He has a circumcision not made with hands. The removal of the sinful flesh of us and our uncircumcision by the circumcision of the flesh of Christ. And he immediately starts talking about our debt being nailed to the cross. The covenant, friend, if you want to enter the covenant through circumcision, then you do so through the circumcision of Christ. His crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. That's entrance into the new covenant. Friends, baptism's technically not entrance into the new covenant. You want to come into the new covenant? The new covenant is through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Thief on the cross, he was in the new covenant. Why? Because he called out on Christ. They didn't pause the crucifixion and baptize him, by the way. Hey, hold up, hold up. We got a thing we got to do. That's not what they did. People who are converted on their deathbeds and die without baptism. You think they are not in the new covenant? No, you come into the covenant through Christ. And through nothing else. And how do you do that? Through his crucifixion. Well, why does this crucifixion matter? Because there must be a sacrifice for sin. Scripture makes this clear. And the blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to forgive us of our sins. But what is? The Lamb of God. 
the Lamb of God has been crucified that we might enter into his eternal kingdom. And when Mary went to the temple that day, completely unknown to her, simply following an allowance given in Leviticus 12, she shows up obediently and faithfully with two birds and hands the Lamb of God to the priest to receive his circumcision as a type and a picture of his future circumcision, his true circumcision, his death on the cross. Friends, Mary actually did bring a lamb to be sacrificed with her. She just didn't kill him that day. We killed him later. For it was my sin and your sin that pinned the Lord Jesus to the cross. Behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful pictures of Jesus that we see in the old covenant. Thank you for the profound ways that you caused the old covenant to be fulfilled in Christ. Father, let us not look to the ritual Let us not look to the empty type and shadow. But let us look to their fulfillment and their meaning in the glorious work of the person of Jesus Christ. Who in the circumcision of his flesh, his crucifixion, has demonstrated himself to be the Lamb of God. Slain from the foundation of the world. Who is worthy of our worship. Who takes away the sins of the world. And Father, in a moment as we celebrate this table... As we celebrate this table that was given to us by Christ during a Passover event. Father, let us make a special note in our minds of the absence of lamb and meat as we celebrate this table. For Christ himself gave new meaning And new weight to the elements of the celebration. Removing the blood sacrifice. For he is the lamb slain once for all. He is the sacrifice once for all. No need for a sacrifice to be had again. His blood is sufficient for all eternity. And instead he points to the cup. And declares this is my blood. Blood that is now given in the crushing of grapes underfoot. A picture of wrath fulfilled. A picture of sustaining harvest. But no longer a picture of animal life taken. For Father, this lamb has been slain. And he needs to be slain no more. For he was slain from eternity past. So, Father, this morning, the unifying reality that we have is that Christ is the bread of life. Christ is the sustaining drink of life. He is our drink offering. He is our bread offering, our grain offering. We no longer need the sacrifice of an animal in our lives. For he is the Lamb of God. And he takes away the sins of the world.
And Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are going to celebrate the table together. I will give you a moment, if you need, at the back or over here at the front to gather up the elements as we prepare to share in the Lord's table with one another. This morning, I invite you to take the bread. Jesus said, this is my body. Take and eat all of it. Father God, we thank you for the picture of the bread. Christ Jesus himself declaring to be the bread of life. Father, we pray that this picture of bread, these these grains sifted out, crushed down, mixed together, pressed under the immense heat, this thing that sustains, this thing that gives life, this thing that engages all the senses. Father, we thank you that Christ is all of this for us. That he truly is bread from heaven. That he's true manna. That he is the fulfillment of all of the bread metaphors that are found throughout the scripture. That he gives life. That he unifies. That he brings together. And Father, we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you also to take the cup. Jesus said, this is... Blood of my new covenant given as a ransom for many. Take and drink all of it. Father God, we thank you for the picture of the cup. Father, so many different things that it represents. Drink offering represents the... Christ's blood, it represents a fulfillment of wrath, it represents the fulfillment of justice, it represents a blood covering for sin, and yet without actual animal blood. Father, we praise you for the work that Christ has done on our behalf. Father, we praise you that we are bound together through Christ. And despite our differences, despite the things that would make us normally have barricades between us. They've all been torn down by this great work of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive us when we continue to hold those barricades up, those walls of separation. Father, we are called to be unified and united around the work that Christ has done for us. And Father, we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The scripture teaches